0: Area. Fire, fire! Oh, baby. I'll give it to you.
1: That looks really good.
0: Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm almost ready, Hello, welcome to Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientist, and I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue
2: Nelson. This time, not one, but two
0: British astronauts on the podcast. I actually think this is one of our best ever podcasts. We've got two hefty, insightful interviews coming up. uh, With the news that Axiom Space is proposing an all-UK commercial human space mission, we will be chatting to future British astronaut Megan Christian. She was recently selected as a reserve astronaut By the European Space Agency ESA.
2: And we also have a conversation with British astronaut Tim peak now retired from ESA but he's never far from the world of space and he's got a new book out which is extremely good by the way as you'll hear later on the history of human spaceflight, uh, we'll also talk to Tim about the Axiom mission his astronaut heroes and get some insights into the selection process
1: I did say I think I said I can sometimes be a bit clumsy <laughs> Which is very, which was very honest, um, yes, and, it and I think I got a reason. I like, you're a, yes, you're a you're a test pilot. <laughs> so you're clumsy.
0: Yeah. Tim Peake coming up in around thirty minutes. Listen out for Sue's insults. I think three.
2: <laughs> Thank you for counting. Uh, first, though, one of ESA's new astronaut recruits, the UK's Megan Christian, although she can also be claimed by Italy, New Zealand and Australia, because not only is Megan multinational, she speaks English, Italian, French and Japanese. She has a PhD in industrial chemistry and has carried out research in Antarctica and during zero G flights. Now, she was selected as a reserve astronaut last year. And just from that brief introduction, you can sort of guess why. And she also works for the UK Space Agency in the Human Space Exploration Group.
0: Now, we should mention we recorded this interview before that Axiom announcement about a UK mission. But we'll talk about that later with Tim. So before we get on to chatting about life in Antarctica, Megan's selection and the future of the ISS, we wondered when she first thought about being an astronaut.
3: I think the first time I was really exposed to the idea of astronauts was probably when I was in primary school and we started learning about space and the planets and black holes and everything. And I was absolutely fascinated by it. But I grew up in Australia and there was no space agency there at the time and certainly no human spaceflight program. So it didn't seem to me that it was something that I could do. I didn't really know about the European Space Agency. I was born in the UK, so I was a UK citizen. But, I mean, in Australia, didn't really know about it. So it was kind of in the back of my mind as potentially the coolest job in the world, but not something that would be for me. It wasn't until many, many years later. So I did all of my school in Australia, and then I moved to to Europe, to Italy, actually, to do a postdoc all that time I was doing material science, just doing different things. Uh, And then I spent a year in Antarctica. And that's when I first learned more about the European Space Agency. And it just happened to be good timing, because that's when uh, a little time, a couple of years before they finally had applications open for astronauts for the first time in 13 years. So it all came together then. I mean, I loved the idea when I was little, but didn't actually think that it could be me.
2: Now that's actually incredibly fortuitous, or even, I can even say fortuitous, um, that you were in Antarctica because as you'll know, it's often used as a sort of an analogy for being in space in terms of the psycholo- psychology of it, the isolation, working with others. Did you have that in your mind at the time or did you, You know, what did you learn about the mindset when you were there that you thought later, actually, this is incredibly useful, this experience?
3: Yeah, I was I was very much exposed to that idea because um, at the base where I was, it's called Concordia Station. It's a combined French and Italian base. And that is actually the place that the European Space Agency sends a research doctor to to do tests on the people who are doing the winter over. So I was actually a test subject, uh, one of these kind of analog astronauts, so, so to say, although Compared to an analog astronaut mission, it was a little bit different because we were doing our own science and we just happened to have these other tests done on us. But I certainly was exposed to that. I mean, I was I was being tested, having blood taken and, and everything else every month or so, doing cognitive tests, doing a lot of qu- questionnaires about the psychology of it all as well. And I did notice that the psychology, it is like the, the way your mind works while you're in that isolated environment is quite different I mean, you have a hundred days of darkness and just having darkness for such a long time plays havoc with your body. I mean, it's tiring. It's hard to wake up in the morning. Um, But at the same time, it makes you experience any sort of emotions even more strongly than you usually would. So if you feel a little bit lonely, then you'll probably feel quite lonely. Uh, On the other hand, if you feel a little bit happy, you'll probably feel quite overjoyed. But that does mean that it's easier to become irritable. And so you really have to work very hard to keep up the moral morale
0: in your team I found when I've I mean I've been lucky enough to go to Antarctica twice but just for weeks at a time rather than the sort of prolonged period you had but now I mean you can phone Antarctica so I quite often talk to British Antarctic Survey scientists on Zoom or on the phone but they still seem to be in a bubble it still takes them about a week to answer their emails as if I was posting them or or sending something over the radio is it does it feel like that is it still a feeling of isolation even though you've got internet and and phones and the like
3: well to give you an idea when i was there we had an internet speed of 512 kilobytes per second for the entire base and that was sending all the scientific data as well we did do a lot of video conferences so we did a lot of outreach with schools and things like that but to do that we would need to close down the bandwidth to the entire base so that we could just use it for the call so it wasn't that easy to do video calls with, with friends and family. Uh, but what was easy was just sending a WhatsApp message. So we could certainly stay in contact via, via WhatsApp or um, I think more recently other, other platforms as well. So it definitely felt like we were with e- within easy contact of just a message, but it's a bit different having that actual human contact. And that meant that we had to be really good, you know, make really good friends with the other people on the team.
2: It was interesting you saying about heightened emotions, because I do remember when Richard was there uh, for one period of time and you coming back and saying to me, oh, my goodness, you can see how there have been sort of various films and, and novels about people in antarctica are all going a little bit mad or that there's always someone usually the chef i think you always say who you know you just don't want anywhere near a knife what what did you find it taught you did you find oh my goodness i'm better at Keeping an even, te- you know, temperament than I thought, or did it made you make you realise, oh, there's an area I've got to be quite careful uh, about, about you know, about your own psychology.
3: Yeah, it definitely does make you realise things about yourself. I, I think I understood that I uh, have a tendency to go towards a little bit of passive aggressiveness if, if <laughs> something's not to my liking um but what I really learned was when to confront an issue and when to let it slide um because some things are just not worth it um but other things you really need to get to the bottom of quickly so that it's not picked up and becomes a snowball issue for the entire team
0: did you have lots of labels on your things in the fridge
3: <laughs> well fortunately as you as you mentioned there is a chef there um and the the chef controlled basically everything we were eating which I'm quite happy about because I didn't have to do anything in that regard but we did have one guy who drank all the milk. So we ran out of milk <laughs> in July. Um, the, the winter, well, in June, I think it was, the winter over started in February, we had to get through to November before we'd have any supplies. Uh, and we ran out of the milk early. So <laughs> that was interesting.
2: And that's not the sort of person you want to be in a confined space <laughs> orbiting the Earth with, potentially, is it? You know, That's the sort of resentment that could, could, could be really, really difficult. Now, you, you did another, um, stint at Concordia the most recent one being October 2020 January 2021 if I've got that right or was that your first one?
3: Uh, my first one was from November 2018 to November 2019 and the second one was was um, sort of just a summer season between sort of October 2020 and, and January, February 2021, uh, right in the middle of the pandemic.
2: Ah, oh, so even more isolating than normal. And I saw that some of the things you were trained in for that, those expeditions were just amazing, like firefighting, uh, medical aid and, and rescue and so obviously your survival in extreme conditions. When it came to the selection process... For being an an ESA astronaut, did you really feel like, wow, I've I've got already got a number of things ticked on the box here?
3: Well, I guess, first of all, those kind, that kind of training was really important, particularly the firefighting. I mean, that the, a fire is one of the biggest risks at Concordia Station because it's on th- more than three kilometers of ice, uh, which means that you can't ground any of the electrical equipment. So you get this build-up of static electricity, which can cause a spark. And so you can quite easily have a fire. So we all had to be trained in firefighting. And then, of course, in from the medical aspect uh, there's there's a doctor, uh, but if something goes wrong, then we need people to help out the doctor, and we need people to go and rescue somebody if they're outside. These were all things that we we learned in training before we went, but also continued to do kind of exercises while we were there and And I do think that um, having experience at least of of training in things that I hadn't necessarily done before uh, I think If nothing else, that helped build the confidence that I needed to think, yes, uh, I can uh, do what an astronaut might need to do, or at least learn what an astronaut needs to do. Because I think before I went to Antarctica, I thought perhaps that there were technical skills that I just wouldn't be able to pick up. A lot of what I did while I was there was programming and electronics, which I didn't have much of a background in. And, you know, running other people's experiments instead of my own. Uh, but it turned out that I really actually enjoyed that. It turned out that I was quite good at it. And so all this kind of training in in technical skills, but also in other areas, definitely gave me the, the confidence to apply.
0: And I think that's what um, I think, speaking to Tim Peake about this, he described himself as a, as a like a lab technician in space when he's on the ISS and working on these experiments, because you're working on scientists behalf, and you don't want to mess them up.
3: Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, these these scientists have been putting their life's work into preparing quite important experiments that are going to, you know, they're to the benefit of, of the world in general, uh, they've put their lives work into building these experiments, but they can't necessarily be there to look after them themselves. So it's actually quite a big responsibility. And that's, analogous between what we do in Concordia or in Antarctica in general and and what astronauts do on the International Space Station.
2: And the other thing you had, which makes you at a huge advantage to, um, I hate to say it, but most uh, people in the UK, is that languages isn't always our forte, shall shall we say. (laughs) um but you speak english french italian and japanese now when i look you know doing a little research on you i saw that you apart from you loving arts and crafts and scuba diving um you also did this martial art which i'd never heard of beca- before called hapkido so i looked it up thinking ah this is why she learnt japanese and then discovered it was a korean martial <laughs> art <laughs> so how or, you
3: know what made you learn japanese Well, I just really loved languages, basically. And the two languages that were offered at my high school were French and Japanese. So that's what I studied. Um, And as I said before, I grew up in Australia. So I guess it makes a little bit more sense in in that part of the world to study Japanese.
2: And you also have experience of parabolic flights as well before you did your application process for ESA.
3: Yeah, that's right. So actually, just completely independently of anything else, um, for my research, I was I was in a big European program called the, the graphene flagship, doing research into this innovative material. And one of the uses that we thought about for this material is uh, for satellites, for cooling devices in satellites. And so we needed to test this, test if it would work uh, without gravity. Uh, and so we, we did a couple of parabolic flights to see to see whether it would work. So I had this amazing experience of, of weightlessness for sort of 20 seconds at a time. And during a flight, you, you do 31 parabolas. So it adds up to about 10 minutes of, of microgravity.
0: So it sounds like you're perfectly qualified to be an astronaut. But the, the selection process, and I think this is something that our listeners will be particularly interested in, because I think we still somehow have in our minds that selection process is very much like those scenes in The Right Stuff, (laughs) with, you know... uh,
2: Unspeakable things. Yeah, with lots and
0: lots of medical stuff and super fitness and these... I mean, it's all alpha males, the right stuff. But um, when I've spoken to Tim Peake about this, he said it's very, very different now. And it's so much as about teamwork. In fact, hardly any was about can you fly a a spacecraft it, it was mostly about can you work with other people is that still fair
3: yeah I, I very much so I mean I, I wouldn't say that I, I'm perfectly qualified I don't know if there is anybody who's perfectly qualified or on the other hand maybe there are many people that are p- perfectly qualified and that's why the selection process was so so difficult But yeah, I I think it's, it's really changed from the right stuff where you were, where they were looking for really exclusively test pilots and test pilots, that's still a route to get into it. But uh, I think there's been a bit of a shift, uh, quite a large shift really towards more the, the scientific side of things. Uh, so I haven't actually done the statistics, but I would say that more of the people in my class, or at least half of us, uh, come from a sort of more science or engineering background rather than from a flight background. So we still need pilots, but uh, the nowadays they kind of, the shuttles fly themselves. Um, so so we're really looking for people who can do those experiments in space and who are good problem solvers, who can get along with each other um, in a long-term mission or even a short-term mission to the International Space Station or further afield to Moon and Mars. So absolutely that human aspect is such a huge part of it. And I think that's what helped me to stand out during the process because I had demonstrated the ability to do it.
2: Were there aspects of the training that you felt obviously like that more comfortable with? Were there aspects that you felt less? less obviously you you succeeded so we're talking a high bar here but whether some like for instance we keep mentioning Tim but you know Tim found the language uh, when it came to learning Russian obviously post-selection really difficult which is understandable but was there a part of your training that you just thought oh I'm gonna I'm gonna have to work a bit harder for this bit
3: yeah interesting question so I haven't had any any training yet but speaking to the selections process I think that each of the steps had its own sort of difficulties and challenges i guess i studied quite a lot for the for the second phase which was all computer based testing around Uh, well, maths and physics and logic, but also there were some really difficult memory exercises. So I sort of worked on on tricks for memorising things.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Give me an example. What sort of memory exercises did they do?
3: There were a few different ones. So there were some visual memory things, but also some auditory memory things. So they would read out a a kind of list of numbers. You didn't know when they were going to stop. Uh, And then at some point they did stop and you had to type back those numbers, but backwards. So uh, as many as you could. Um, And it wasn't like they gave you points for all the ones that you got right. They gave you points up to the point where you got one wrong. So if you got the third one wrong, then you'd only get two points, even if you got all the rest of them right.
0: Wow. This once again proof we can't be
3: astronauts. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I found it... that I improved in the practice. So they gave us some practice tests uh, a couple of weeks before we got to Hamburg where this test was taken. Um, and so I did, you know, practice a little bit and I, I found that I improved over time. So it is something that you can work on.
2: It's like one of those birthday things when you did when you were little where, where you know, the... the birthday person's mum or dad would bring in a tray of objects covered with a tea towel and then remove them for like 30 seconds and that, there would be like a key or a packet of jelly and a coin and a pencil and then they'd cover them and then you had to write right uh, now obviously oh, so this is
3: yeah doing a bit of brain training definitely helps
0: oh, Great. I love it. Uh, and what was it like as it narrowed down? Because presumably you, you connect and make friends with people as you go on, on WhatsApp groups and stuff. So it must be weird as it gets narrower and narrower. And you think, hang on, or oh, they've gone, or oh, they've gone, or oh, I thought they were a dead cert and they've gone now. It's
3: like every reality
2: TV <laughs> show you've ever watched, <laughs> isn't
3: it? Yeah, it is a bit like that. I mean, the, I guess the first time that I – well, actually – Really early on, I joined a, a Discord group, which was with a whole lot of people who had applied or who were applying. And so we, we were kind of talking about um, motivation letters and CVs and how they should be, and and then started talking about what the selection process might include and what people were doing to study. Um, I made a little, uh, well, I joined a little study group, four of us, and they're my friends to this day. Uh, so it yeah, it was it was really amazing. But the first time I met people in person was when I went to that stage two in and I was just blown away uh, by the people that were there. I mean, there were helicopter test pilots. There were hugely successful scientists. And um, it's kind of intimidating in a way, really. Uh, and then slowly, slowly, I mean, that step, we had about 1,400 people. And the step after, only 400. And then uh, that's that was the psychological round. And then from there, about 100 people did the medical. And the medical was when I really got to know people. So we had a group of eight Uh, And we were together doing uh, quite invasive medical procedures for a whole week. So we had some interesting things to talk about. And so I really got to know that that team. And actually, uh, one of them is John McPaul, who is the para-astronaut. So I got to know him quite well as well. And yeah, then from there, they took about half of that group through to the panel interview and about half again through to the final interview with the director general. So it really was Fantastic to meet all those people along the way and but at the same time be be surprised when when you know people that you really thought were going to get through and would be amazing astronauts and they probably would um, you know they just had to a choice had to be made basically
2: and when that choice was made and you were made a, a reserve astronaut, what does that actually mean? Does this mean you'll go through the same training as the other astronauts at the same time, or will you be called up? as a reserve, to do the training?
3: Well, this is the first time that the, that the European Space Agency has a reserve. So there's a little bit of working out what is what it, how exactly it's going to work because also the kind of space uh, exploration landscape is also changing. But just kind of to start with, the, the ESA model is a bit different to the NASA model. So at NASA, they recruit quite often, they recruit quite a lot of people and they train all of them Uh, but not all of them end up flying. But at ESA, they would like to keep up the record of everybody who trains then gets a flight. So at the moment, they have five flights available. So they've chosen five people as career astronauts because they basically have their flight guaranteed. The rest of us make up part of the reserve, so we could come in if, for example, one of those career astronauts can't continue with the program, if extra opportunities become available, like if an an extra career astronaut position opens up, the member states decide to do that. Or more likely, as it seems, is to do a, a, what's called a project astronaut position. Um, so that's actually already happening. So the first person from our class to fly is actually going to be one of the reserves. He's from Sweden uh, because his government made an arrangement with Axiom Space, a commercial provider, through the European Space Agency, uh, for him to do a short-term mission in January. So he, he got a call one day and they said, oh, you have to be in Houston for training next week. So these are the kind of things that, that could happen.
0: And could it happen? I mean, what's the likelihood? I mean, is is it looking pretty good for you? How much can you say?
3: I I can't really say too much. Um, I mean, like I said, there's there's a bit of a changing landscape with space exploration at the moment. Uh, But I think things are looking pretty good.
0: In the meantime, you do have a job at the UK Space Agency. Exploration commercialisation lead. Uh, What does that mean?
3: yeah that 's right so so uh, when I was selected as a reserve astronaut, I wanted to move more into the space sector, and I, I was ready to kind of move on from my research job. I loved it, but i was I was ready to for my next adventure and so I got in contact with the u k space Agency and they identified a gap in the exploration team. Uh, for somebody to strategize over the post-International Space Station landscape, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> I'll oh, explain. Fantastic. <laughs> um, and, and, and I mean, the, the reason that that could have been, could be interesting for me is, is, partly because of all the research that I'd done throughout this elections process, also because I had had a, a new space startup company. So it was kind of in, in that commercial realm already. But what what does this mean? Well, the, the International Space Station was originally planned to be going for 15 years, but it's now already been going for 23 years. It's been doing amazing science during all that time. But it does have a, a lifetime. It, just basically the stresses that, that the structure goes through means that it will have uh, an end of life. And at the moment, that's planned to be after 2030. So how do we continue to do the kind of science and research that we do uh, in, uh, in low Earth orbit on the ISS once the ISS is decommissioned? Um, and that's probably going to be at least from from NASA's perspective they're kind of leaving low Earth orbit to commercial providers. So there are a number of companies that have come up and said, okay we'll build a station uh, and so we're trying I'm, I, my job is to work out where the UK fits into that, uh, how we can benefit from it, how we can get UK businesses involved.
0: So that's viable what manufacture. In space, potentially, or the sort of, I mean, exploration, I should say, is it's normally refers to sort of humans in space or the robots like uh, the Mars rovers and the like. So it, it would be kind of shifting what is done by space agencies now to commercial operators to make money ultimately.
3: Yeah, well, there are kind of different aspects to this. So, I mean, f- first of all, the, the reason for getting companies involved is to then free up the resources to, for agencies, governmental agencies, to go further afield, so Moon and Mars, for example. But, but there, we still want to have a presence in low Earth orbit, and there are a few reasons for that. So one aspect is, is manufacturing, in-orbit manufacturing. So we've learned that there are a lot of things that you can do when you don't have gravity that you just can't do here on Earth. And that has interesting applica- implications for things like pharmaceuticals and also things like advanced materials, semiconductors. And so all of these could be made in kind of uh, little factories that are, that are orbiting the Earth so that's one side of things. At the same t- uh, that doesn't necessarily need the presence of humans.
0: So that could be robotic?
3: That could be robotic. That could definitely be robotic. But at the same time, uh, we also want to have humans in low Earth orbit because there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of work that can be done to study the human body. Uh, so to study ageing, for example, but also to study what happens to the human body under those conditions for then uh, further space missions. At the same time, it's a kind of training ground for going further afield. So astronauts, um, I mean, it's, it's much cheaper than, than going to the moon, uh, but we still need to have that experience before we go further afield. So to see how how our bodies re- react and, and how what kind of operational skills we need uh, to continue exploration.
2: So is there money to be made from Artemis then with its missions to the moon?
3: yeah that 's an interesting question so i 've been mainly focused on the low earth orbit or what 's called the leo economy and that 's when i'm talk- that 's what i 'm talking about with this in orbit manufacturing. but the moon is the next step right, and there are sort of commercial aspects to that already. For example, telecommunications, uh, navigation, because when we eventually have people living and working on the moon, they're going to need to be able to communicate easily with each other and with people on Earth. They're going to need to be able to get around. So that's one aspect. Other aspects are are being involved in the supply chain of of building Gateway, which is going to be a, a station orbiting the moon, and of course, building bases on the moon. Uh, And then there's the whole aspect of resources that you can get from the moon. So potentially metals or most likely water, being able to, to mine water from the moon, which you can then split into hydrogen and oxygen. You can use the oxygen to breathe. You can use the hydrogen for fuels. So there are a lot of potential opportunities there.
0: And there's a real possibility you could go to the moon.
3: It's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to get my hopes up too much, but that would be amazing. That would be absolutely amazing. Let, let, let's let hope going to the, the International Space Station first and then moon next step.
2: And so are you a little bit like a member of the Thunderbirds team, which is probably way before your time, <laughs> um, it's just sort of waiting there for that magic call to come, which says, yeah, we we need you, you know, get training. Would you be behind, though? Would you think... Uh, would you still get your full training in before you went up you know with one of these emergency calls or would it be a truncated sort of really concentrated get you up to speed type of of course
3: so it depends on the mission and and how it comes about i mean the kind of minimum period that you would need as a space tourist i guess would be sort of 5 to 6 months worth of training but of course the reason we go is to do is to do science so you would need at least a year of training, and so that's what I'd what I'd be looking for. Of course, that doesn't include things like training for for extravehicular activity, spacewalks. If that's to come up, then I would I would look at having even even further training. Um, but yeah, so in the meantime, I'm I'm trying to do everything I can to to prepare myself as as best as possible. If if and when that call comes and I have to drop everything.
0: And in the meantime, you've got plenty of landscape to strategize.
3: Yes, exactly.
2: (laughs) Well, we will wish you all the best. We have, I I don't know, do we have a good, to sort of paraphrase Han Solo, do we have a good feeling about this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. we're we're looking forward to seeing you going up into space. Megan, thank you very much.
3: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
2: The lovely Megan Christian, ESA Reserve astronaut, and we'll be following her progress, and I'm pretty sure it will be progress,
0: with interest. I love uh, that she was natural, unfiltered. Uh, That comment of tendency about being (laughs) passive-aggressive, I think was was very, very good. More on the uh, selection process uh, with uh, Tim Peake in, in a few minutes' time. Now, in last month's episode, I was grappling for the name of the song, which had the line, We Are Stardust. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's right. I, to be honest, I had no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> um,
0: thanks to uh, Dave Coa. I think that's Coa. Apologies, Dave, if I got your name wrong, uh, in Northern California. And Judy Thompson, uh, both via email, for setting me right. So Dave writes, the answer is that it's a song called Woodstock, originally written by Joni Mitchell. But the version Richard probably has in mind is the more famous release a bit later on Crosby Stills Nash and Young's first album. Dave also says, "I think the show is great. Keep up the good work." Oh,
2: nice. Did you pay him?
0: No. <laughs> Oh. No, unsolicited emails lovely uh judy writes it's a beautiful lyric by joni mitchell called woodstock performed famously by crosby stills and nash also by mitchell and others and she's also sent the lyric which i will read i won't sing we are stardust <laughs> <Please don't. laughs> we are stardust we are golden we are billion year old carbon and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden which is good Oh, that's that's nice. good. Yeah. Um, I actually think the version I had in mind was the one that's played in the UK a lot. It was a big UK hit by a band called Matthew's Southern Comfort I've and it bothers me. There is, no there is no apostrophe. apostrophe. Oh, it my really goodness. bothers me. Oh. Um, it reached number one in the British charts in October 1970 and according to Wikipedia, Radio 1 DJ Tony Blackburn made there's you a me <laughs> Sorry <about> it, that. <laughs> uh, Tony Blackburn made Woodstock his record of the week and sales rocketed. You've met Tony Blackburn haven't I you? I
2: have on a camel <laughs> in, in Dubai as you do and he was he was charming and lovely. And in fact I had met him I think in the 1980s as well uh, when he was at Capital Radio and again you know you know you hear these terrible rumours about people but only after they've died. Uh, And then everyone admits, yes, so-and-so was awful. So you will never hear a bad rumour about Tony Blackburn. Everyone I know who's who's met him or worked with him says he is unbelievably lovely. And national treasure. A bit like one of our guests a bit later on, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, Can I just mention one other little bit of admin? Oh, yeah. Uh, There was a headline in the Daily Star the other day. This is
2: the paper that called us me... Space boffin, Sue Nelson nerd yes, with that's the word right. nerd in yeah,
0: yeah yeah um so their big headline on the front front page all the awful stuff going on in the world I do like the Daily Star um, is there mice on Mars yeah <laughs> but above that the uh, the headline above that space boffins say their new discovery points to rodents on red planet <laughs> I just like to make it clear that wasn't us
2: <laughs> although I do wish it was I do that, wish that's it was very good yeah, so um, you can get in touch with us via email podcast at spaceboffins or on Facebook and I can't bring myself to go just call it twitter X Twitter yeah Twitter this is space boffins we're in partnership with the naked scientists let's get on to the big UK space news that houston based axiom has signed an agreement with the UK space agency for an all British astronaut mission. Words I, I didn't think I'd ever hear or it's say <laughs> it's yeah. amazing. The proposal, and it is only a proposal at the moment, but we know it's yeah, we know it's gonna happen. Is that the flight would be commercially funded but overseen by the UK space agency. And the flight when a SpaceX Dragon would carry four UK astronauts and could either orbit the Earth on its own or head for the uh, International Space Station.
0: And it just so happens there are now four UK astronauts. How about that? So there's ESA rookie astronaut Rosemary Coogan, reserve ESA astronauts John McFall and Megan Christian, And the obvious commander of the mission would be everyone's favourite astronaut, Tim Peake. Now, on the day the announcement was made, we already had an interview lined up with Tim. It was to talk about his new book, which I have here. Uh, Yeah, because people can see you holding that (laughs) up. Yeah, you can hear that. It's a hefty book, Space, The Human Story, which is a history of human spaceflight. And it's good. It's really good. Uh, And it uses its own experiences. It gives a real insight into the history of the astronaut experience and some of the remarkable remarkable stories and characters Uh, it does include the story too of how he found a report accidentally left on a printer at ESA (laughs) that made it clear he had little chance of ever flying in space and we will talk about that Uh, we asked him first though whether the label the right stuff coined originally by Tom Wolfe to describe who was chosen as an astronaut was problematic
1: I think some things that were set uh, in the early days were unhelpful. Certainly, you can understand why NASA and the Soviets went for military fast jet test pilots. You know, they've, they've got a job to do in a short space of time, get somebody to the surface of the moon. We've already got a pool of highly qualified people who are used to flying You know, missions. But that meant that it was an all male environment. That wasn't helpful. It also meant that um, you had this selection process. The, the, the right stuff was the, the term that was coined. And, and it was thought for many years afterwards that that's what makes an astronaut. And clearly today we know that actually the, the being an astronaut involves so many more different skills and actually the skill sets that we need today for a six-month, maybe a year-long mission to the International Space Station, you need a different psycho- psychology and a different um, profile, and actually some, sometimes what what we had in those early days of the right stuff isn't actually useful.
2: One of the things I enjoyed reading was your comparisons between the competitiveness of those first astronauts and uh, with ESA and, and the training um, today and and that very different sort of slight mindset, particularly when it came to knowing who would go into space and who wouldn't. And you even said, you know, putting on a brave face if you were, if if you realise that you might not be going up um, I- immediately.
1: Yeah, that was something I really wanted to get across. Out the whole book, it's it's the human story. That's what the book's called, and it is a human story. And I wanted to really give a kind of inside, uh, behind the curtains, look at, at what, what we feel. What are the emotions? What are we going through? We're ordinary people being asked to do an extraordinary job, but um, there are highs and lows and every astronaut who's selected knows that that's just the very early stage. And until you pass a hundred kilometers, the Carmen line, you're, you know, you, you can sing the ballad of the unflown astronaut and um, nobody wants that. And, and from my point of view, I had to go through that whole process of not knowing if I had a mission or not. And then you look back at the, the days of the Mercury, the Gemini. Apollo astronauts. And you think, wow, you know, they were going through similar emotions. Who was going to be the first to be selected? And uh, everybody expecting John Glenn to, to be the first. And of course, it was a big surprise when Al Shepard w- was picked. And, and then you fast forward to the shuttle era where you had, you know, big classes of astronauts being selected. And there was so much competition between them as to who was going to get the mission and when. And we didn't, you know, we didn't feel in the European Space Agency, thankfully, we didn't feel that competition between ourselves so much because it was a more a competition between member states. It was more about politics and funding than it was about individuals.
0: Well, you were the unflown astronaut, though, weren't you? Because the the way you were selected, you were selected as a Brit, which was a, a surprise to a lot of people, but without any funding attached to you from the British government. Tell us about, you know, you sort of... You know, this became a reality. If you you spotted this on a printer at, at ESA.
2: Oh, honestly, when we read that, <laughs> never... we read it together on the plane. We were both re- and both of us sort of went,
1: "What?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. That That is one of those um, things you don't expect to see. And I kind of thought, "Oh, you know, really, somebody should have been a lot more careful." But I never forget that press conference when we were selected as new astronauts in two thousand and nine, and Jonathan Amos was there as the BBC science uh, communicator. And um, his first question to the director general was very blunt. It was straightforward. He just said, why? He said, you know, to Jean-Jacques Dordain at the time, why have you given us a British astronaut? We don't contribute anything. Um, And it really put Jean-Jacques on the spot. But he said, you know, well, you know, Tim did very well in the selection process, and, and, and that's all we're worried about. That's all we're focused on. Of course, that then set the wheels in motion, and, and now we are part of the Human spaceflight Programme. But coming across that on the printer, when uh, initially there were five flights to space that the European Space Agency had, and six astronauts, and... We knew that two Italians were flying. They'd already bought the flights. We knew that Germany were the biggest contributors. So there's, there's Alex, Samantha and, and um, Luca who have a mission and Toma, uh, Andy and myself didn't. And out of the three of us, then there was one who we didn't even pay into the programme. So when I saw that in black and white from the printer, Tim Peake is the reserve astronaut with the least chance of flying. That's it's, brutal, isn't it? It's a rather it? harsh thing That's to read it's, it's... On, on a Wednesday morning with your cup of coffee. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs>
2: Oh my goodness. Yeah. And, and no uncertain terms there. And am going back to that competitiveness. You know, you mentioned the shuttle there. And in the book, you know, you mentioned about how once they knew who was going to fly in the class of 35, they never met together as a group again. But that was not the case with, with, with the ESA astronaut course, So perhaps, as you say, because of this funding, you sort of, knew your pecking order, whoever put in the most money was most likely to be at the top of that list, regardless of the internal competition
1: and point scoring. Yes, um, I mean, that was from Mike Mullane's book, uh, Riding Rockets. which Oh, is a it's wonderful. brilliant. Yeah, we've yes. interviewed him yeah, yeah he's 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 a fantastic character and it just i thought that whole shuttle era was just so remarkable and i felt i did i felt very sad it is a sad book in many places and um and when I thought that i thought well that that really is sad because that's what we have we have camaraderie we have this closeness this support network and yeah, we celebrated um, Luca going off first, and and Alex and then Samantha, and, and we knew what the politics was, so we could really just continue our friendship, and, and we still do to this day. Um, so it, it was really, uh, yeah, it was a different environment back then uh, it, with the 35 new guys, and that was very sad to think that it, it drove a wedge
0: between them. And I wonder about the, um, the, the why physical excellence is still required for space, because... I mean, we we know you don't have to be physically excellent to actually to actually fly in space. But I mean, you go into some detail and we know from the right stuff and the Mercury astronauts, the amount of physical tests they had. But it sounds to me that like yours were quite, quite similar. And that's really not changed.
1: No, that hasn't changed. And actually, something I thought fascinating whilst researching the book was that Neil Armstrong didn't exercise. <laughs> you know, he didn't believe in it. He, he, he felt that we had a finite number of heartbeats in our life, so why waste? Why waste any of them running around a track? Um, and so, but but people do think that astronauts are these perfect physical specimens who are Olympic athletes, and of course, we're not. What the space agency is looking for is low risk. They are just trying to eliminate as much risk from the program as possible. Risk of a problem with eyesight or cardiovascular or hearing or um, bone density loss or muscular problems. So that's why the medical process is so rigorous. It's, It's whittling down the risk, but it's not looking for athletic performance or perfection.
0: And just on that, you suggest that actually the physical tests are themselves a test of a test because it's how you react to the physical tests is also being tested. If that makes if that makes sense, it is. I mean, you have to have a
1: huge chunk of, of humor, a sense of humor about the whole process. You've got to hang your dignity up at the door, uh, and and basically, I, I think if you can handle the week long medical test, then then you're probably going to handle space flight just fine.
2: But it, it sounds as though the the knowing, you know, knowing that you were at the bottom of the list <laughs> to potentially fly, actually was a bonus in a way for you and and i think this is where the book becomes enjoyable a because you're saying it wasn't enjoyable. no i'm not saying that that just sounded like that (laughs) (laughs) but but a because it's (laughs) thank you you're welcome um you know you've got this history of human space flight throughout which is not in chronological order which both of us quite liked that that it you know made it very readable Is the fact that there's insight and there's personal insight from you into what, how, what happened when you went through it, and how you related to how the people before have gone through it, and through not knowing, you know, knowing for sure that yeah, in in a brutal way with you, you know, that, that leftover piece of paper on the on the printer was that you could actually just sort of think, well, I'm going to enjoy this, you know, if you take the fact that you you know you're not effectively in the running to get
1: that first spot. I would say that's, that's liberating. I think it's an advantage. And actually looking back in hindsight, I was like that from the get go with the selection process going through that year that those interviews, because I didn't think there was a strong likelihood of of a Brit being selected. I didn't, genuinely think I was going to get picked, regardless of my performance. I was going to put in the best performance possible. But there was this um, environment where I felt I could perhaps relax a bit more and be myself a bit more. Um, And I think that was an advantage. I was on the other side of the table last year when we were selecting the new class of ESA astronauts. And at times I was crying out you know, mentally to these people opposite and thinking, you've got one hour, you've got one hour to, to tell us who you really are. And some candidates who were excellent on paper were so reserved and they were robotic in their answers, just giving the answer that they thought was the answer that we wanted to hear. And I I just think to myself, you know, if you, if you walk out that door and we don't know quite who you are, you're a risk and we don't want risk. We want to know even, you know, warts and all, even if you have flaws, if somebody goes out the door and we just thought, gosh, we know them, they're, you know, that, that we're we're happy to take that person and put them through this process. So I think you do have to relax. You do have to be yourself and perhaps not having such high expectations in the beginning enables you to do that. What are your warts then? (laughs) <laughs> just ask rebecca my wife she'll, she'll spend a, a, at least a couple of hours telling you all of them i'm sure uh, <laughs> did you reveal them did you reveal them in your interview process um, you are asked you know to give some of your strengths and, and weaknesses and it's always hard oh you didn't say my weaknesses, oh, weaknesses. are i'm weaknesses. just a bit too much of a perfectionist
2: <laughs> you didn't use that one did you
1: <laughs> <laughs> no i didn't use the the perfectionist ones i did say i think i said i can sometimes be a bit clumsy. <laughs> <laughs> which is very, which is very honest, um, yes, and, and, the and I think I got a reason really <laughs> yes. yes, you're a you're a test pilot. So you're clumsy, <laughs> yes. but um, we all, we all have our moments. But uh, but no, I think you've got to you've got to have a bit of humour. And um, Pete, Pete Pete Conrad is one of my here. I've never got to meet Pete Conrad. I wish wish I could have done. Um, but he just seems to me somebody who had that perfect mix of professionalism and humour, a lot of colour, uh, and, and just made that environment so pleasant for people who worked
0: with him. They seemed to really enjoy his company. Uh, it's, it's interesting to talk about those those early astronauts. Um, you, pete conrad but my one of my favorites and i wish i had been able to meet him um was scott carpenter one of the original mercury astronauts and i always felt he got really badly treated and he would have made a great modern astronaut because he made all these observations of the earth and he was quite poetic in the way he wrote but actually he was completely unsuited for those early mercury missions where you needed everything straight down the line and just be that straight down the line military test pilot
1: Yeah, I know. And when he came out with the photographs and I think only one was of of the spacecraft and that's all the engineers were interested in. They're like, well, all the other ones are just, Earth. what's he doing taking photos of Earth? You know, we've only got one useful photo here of the spacecraft. Which which Um, bits did you enjoy?
2: um, uh, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there. Which bits did you enjoy most of all when you were researching it? Was, Was it seeing this, these sort of, you know, flawed but extremely likable characters or was it the sort of history aspect of it or was it the the you know the personalities
1: it, it was a whole mix really and the one thing I, I really enjoy is when, when we look back it's very easy to to look back and think, goodness me, you know, how did you not know that? But what's interesting and fun, I think, is to put your. It, it makes you put yourself in their shoes and think. Well, they didn't know. They didn't know that they needed handholds to do a spacewalk. So they sent Lenov and, and Ed White out there uh, with nothing to grab onto at like all, a shiny surface. over the, yes. over the and w- thick gloves. Yes, that's right, over, <laughs> sticking themselves over the over the windows of the of the spacecraft. Um, I, and yeah. I just I thought that was quite humorous when when you when you research and you look back on and you know what you know
0: today but we didn't know back then and and, i mean another astronaut. i mean one of the the greats um neil armstrong and he the way he could just walk walk away whether you know metaphorically or or really from a disaster i just find extraordinary just go for a go for a cup of tea or something afterwards
1: I think I mean everybody knows Neil Armstrong for the first person on the moon and um but he has been a, a hero of mine for many years as a test pilot I think he's has you know, had the most remarkable flying skills I don't think that many people would have been able to do what he did in Gemini 8 when, when they undocked from the Agena and got into that uncontrollable rotation, to have the presence of mind, to have the knowledge of the systems on board that spacecraft, and the flying skill, the raw skill, to be able to re- regain control. Um, I, I mean, I think he was just the right person at the right time to do that. Uh, and, and he gets a huge amount of respect from me for that.
2: One of the things
1: um, you
2: mentioned was about being an astronaut that you said, and it really s- it struck a chord with me when you were saying about whether you are the observer or the observed.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, well, we're always being observed. Um, and you have to get comfortable with that. It's a bit like you know, living on the space station, a bit like living in, in Big Brother, I'm sure. But, um you have to embrace it and also you have to see this as a positive. And, and we were encouraged to think of the cameras as, as an extra crew member on board the space station. And that, that's true, really. Everybody who's looking at those cameras is there to help you and support you with the mission. And, and that's what you have to really focus and
2: on. And that's something that's different from the first human space flight, where there were, you know, particularly the ones that were, you know, going around the moon and what have you had those periods of of no contact whatsoever whereas o- orbiting the earth you you you're always in contact and now you're not only always in contact you're always being seen
1: that's right yes um and of course, that that permanent contact is interesting. There's stories there when you know astronauts have said things <laughs> that they shouldn't have said when they they don't realise that people are listening. Uh, like uh, you know, a crew who uh, were very sick and people throwing up and saying, "Well, let's just don't say anything. You know, just put that away. We won't mention it." And of course, not realising that they hot mic and and actually mission control are listening and they do know that you've just thrown up and you really should mention that. <laughs> um, so the, the, you know, there are there are times where things get stressful and and I think that sometimes that can be difficult as a crew often it's nice to be able to just work together as a crew in a stressful environment you know you're not sitting there at a console you can't pop out and have a cup of coffee in five minutes time or or go grab a hamburger Um, you are the ones who are in jeopardy your lives are at risk and sometimes you just want to switch off the communications and talk together as a crew Uh, and sometimes you don't have that luxury it makes it very difficult uh, when we were doing the, the spacewalk, we know that every word and the, the cameras are being sent down to, to Earth. And so your performance is, is there for everybody to watch. And, and that can be quite nerve wracking. But you just have to kind of block that out and, and just focus on, on doing a good job. I do
0: find actually the, the astronauts talking during spacewalks quite funny because it's so artificially polite. You sound like you're. Everyone's really careful about about what about what the, yeah. what they're uh, what they're saying.
1: Yes, and when things really go wrong, we push the cameras away. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I had to do. I had to do one morning in the Japanese laboratory where, where this this furnace didn't go into place correctly, and and this had been years in the making, taking us two days to build it on the space station, and I was slotting it into place, and it stood proud about two inches, and it was just a clunk and one of the electrical connectors at the back didn't connect where it should have done. And then you just gracefully push the cameras away and um, (laughs) switch off the communications and, Grab your crewmates over and just say, "Okay, we've got a problem." Let, let's because you know as soon as you mention it, it will have this incredible, um, you know, cascading effect. Uh, and so, before you actually mention, uh, "Houston, we've got a problem," you really want to make sure you know what the problem is.
0: You, you must have found, I think, uh, I that there are missions that I mean, we're similar age. Um, missions that I would sort of grew up with the Skylab missions, which you know, we, we in the seventies would get the the PR stuff that would be on Blue Peter. And you get see the astronaut. I mean, that was amazing. This huge space and floating around. But when you dig into that, all the problems that those missions encountered, all the things we learnt from those missions. I mean, that must have been particularly fascinating to sort of read about those first and to, to research those first um, uh, space station missions.
1: Absolutely. And in many respects, you know, they made life difficult on themselves by having such a large volume. Um, looking back, you know, if you're going to start building space stations and working out how to live in microgravity, then starting small is is easier and better. That vast volume with nothing to hold on to um, is bad enough in, in the Japanese laboratory. Actually, it's the biggest volume we have on the space station. And if you're not careful, you can find yourself stuck in the middle, not able to reach a handrail. Um, uh, So, uh, you know, they were learning. They were experimenting with things like, can you shower in space? Let's give it a try. Oh, that was crazy, crazy, crazy. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, And realizing that that's, that's pretty tricky. Let's not let's not do that. So, again, it's the it's the looking back. that I love that the, the human the, the warmth of the human stories that, that come out and also realizing that not every crew is the same. Um, you know, Skylab three had a terrible time and I felt really bad for them because I think that the media uh, portrayed this as this big mutiny and it wasn't quite that. But they were definitely under a lot of pressure and they definitely weren't performing at the same level as the previous crew. But some crews don't. And and even today, we see that on board the space station when Peggy Whitson was on board. Wow. I mean, the work, her work ethic and the performance and the science that she was doing as the commander laid down the gauntlet and everyone was terrified. <laughs> how are we going to, you know, catch up with Peggy and, and even match that? Um, so some crews are just exceptional. And, uh, and I, I felt for the Skylab 3 crew um, because they did get a, a, a tough time because of it.
2: Now... It's been in the news, um, different types of reports, actually, some more cautious than others. But here's one that says, Tim Peake to quit retirement to lead UK's first astronaut mission. Uh, UK Space Agency, to be fair, being a little bit more uh, reserved, should we say, or cautious about this. but, But explain this UK's first astronaut mission, because it sounds really exciting.
1: It is really exciting. Um, yes, some, I think some media outlets have, have made some uh, assumptions and jumped several steps ahead because... What we've, what we've got this morning today is a, a signature, signing of an MOU, Memorandum of Understanding between Axiom Space, an American-based commercial company, and the UK Space Agency. What's really exciting is it, it's uh, engaging in conversation, exploratory conversation, to send uh, British astronauts to potentially the International Space Station, but a uh, mission to space for, for science and research, engineering and education, but commercially sponsored, so at no cost to the taxpayer but being handed over to the UK Space Agency to to run the mission. So it's an absolute win-win. It's the best of all worlds. And um, is really exciting, very innovative. So uh, I'm certainly in conversation with the UK Space Agency about how we could make this mission work and make the most how of it. Have you been asked to command it? Uh, at the moment, no crew has been selected. And there are lots of discussions going on about how the, the mission could work uh, so uh, I'm not going to say anything about crew announcements or s- assignments right now. But at the moment, it's exploratory communication. And we're really just trying to focus on how we can make this into a, a fantastic mission for the UK. But there
2: must be a, quite a short, short list <laughs> of people qualified for this from Britain. And also looking at the other names, um, one of whom being uh, Megan Christian, who is also on uh, on, on this this podcast. Um I was going to say you were the granddaddy of the lot, but no, that's probably... You're not that old, are you? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Sam. <laughs> Second insult. Oh,
2: yeah. I hope you can keep it. track. Are you, are used, I left. used to like Actually, you. Actually, I do have one left. Um, you know, it, the experience, shall we say, vintage experience, um, that, astronaut. Nice. Yeah. Um, but it must be a great thought at the prospect of of not only potentially leading something like this, but working with the next generation of British astronauts.
1: It is. It's really exciting. I mean, yes, a, a, any astronaut would love a mission to space. And to be working you know with uh, the next generation of astronauts who could potentially be part of the Artemis missions um, it is brilliant. And we've got three fantastic astronauts that were selected last year, by the European Space Agency. We've got Rose, we've got John and, and McGann, who are all brilliant um, and uh, I know them well and uh, yeah, if we got the opportunity to work together, it would be really exciting. Do
0: you want to get your final insult I in before I ask insult. a nice question at the end? Uh, yes, now, I know you think my,
2: my first insult was at the beginning where I expressed <laughs> surprise at actually enjoying your book, but I have to say, this is the way, you know you know this, um, Tim, you've met us many times, we're journalists and we write for a living, so obviously when you start reading a book, you're like, yeah, okay, give Let's let's see what this is like, let's, and it and it is good that's and it great. is enjoyable. Yeah. You must have read an absolute ton of books and see to, to 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 bring all this thread together. And I think that's what makes it stand out. In that instead of reading thirty books, you can just read this one. Um, yeah, my only bone <laughs> to pick with you, Tim, is in in the bibliography because it's great. You talk about the Mercury Thirteen. You make a reference <laughs> to some of the dogs in space. <laughs> There is not in your bibliography <laughs> Wally Funk's Race for Space by Sue Nelson or Space Dogs by Richard Hollingham. What the hell is going on there?
1: Oh, With a the paperback. No. Oh, I'm just, so just, sorry. Just, just change I... that. <laughs> I will, I will. Right, we'll get that out straight Good. away. Or, or straight away. Okay. But, yeah, I know, I know. But congratulations. Uh, no, I feel really bad now. Sorry, yeah, Sue. Yeah, but honestly, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very
0: much.
2: Really enjoyable, really enjoyable read.
0: Um, I'll just get one more question in. How do you see it all shaping up in the future? We've talked about Axiom. We've talked about the whole history of space flight. Is this the way now? Is it a mix of, so does NASA go to the moon and with ESA and and JAXA go to the moon and Mars and private sort of take that space over in in orbit? How do you see things shaping up with the sort of human space flight?
1: Yeah, I do. I think that's what's really exciting at the moment. That's why, again, this is a really exciting announcement because it puts the UK right at the front of these discussions and, and this new model of working. So I think we're slowly handing over low Earth orbit to commercial companies. Axiom Spacer already building the, their new modules for a new space station to bolt onto the ISS. Um, and that frees up government resources to be able to do the Artemis programme. And, you know, ESA is part of that. The UK is part of that. Uh, and, and I think this is going to be the, the, the new way of working. So very exciting times, really. And, and the fact that UK industry can get involved right
0: now at the very beginning of that is brilliant. Thank you so much. Sorry for the insults from my colleague here. <laughs>
1: that's no colleague. That's your wife. Yes. I expect nothing boom, 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 boom. Right. Can we do it
2: a quick um, screen grab if that's all and, right?
1: Absolutely, no. I was going to say, for, for what it's worth, Wally, Wally Funk and the, the Race for Space is a brilliant book, and yeah, I should I shall amend I shall amend that and get it in the the paperback definitely.
0: <laughs>
2: British astronaut Tim Peake. We'll put that picture on our Facebook page, and the book is called Space: The Human Story. And as you can tell, we totally recommend it it's really good no it's really good yeah yeah I I just love this bit and
0: I didn't I was going to mention this in the interview but we we sort of ran out of time with the interview we had half an hour with Tim and you pretty much heard everything we said I think including the chat at the end (laughs) oh by the way we'll put that picture up um on facebook did you sorry i wasn't really paying attention (laughs) i was looking for the page (laughs) of the book um uh, this is um let's talk about astronaut selection and um it turned out not so many air force astronauts were selected originally in the uh the mercury group so they issued um guidance for the selection process and uh this is just from tim tim's book among the hot tips wear knee-length socks to avoid having any bare leg showing at any time below the hems of your trousers select a long drink if offered at any cocktail parties or socials and consume it slowly and if standing with hands on hips ensure your thumbs are to the rear <laughs>
2: <laughs> <I'm> doing... <coughs> That's, only women fit. should
0: use the thumbs forward posture when stand hand on hip Oh, my goodness. I know. So it's extraordinary. Oh, so there's I'm some. Try-
2: oh, I see what they mean. Yeah, I'm, ta- yeah. I'm doing it now. I've got yeah. my hands. Yeah. Oh, if my hands are on my hip, they Just should be. Like that. Oh, that's weird. It is weird. Yeah. yeah. More likely to be behind yeah. oh. So that's
0: obviously how you get selected as an astronaut.
2: Well, and this is why I'm not one. Um, do get in touch with us via email, Facebook, or Twitter. Um, that Tim Peake interview, by the way, was recorded when we were in Orebro in Sweden.
0: And we would like to dedicate this edition of Space Boffins to the memory of Lavisa Arneson Comhamre, who always wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, Lavisa will live on in all our thoughts, and her name will be carried, thanks to Sue, to Jupiter on NASA's Europa Clipper mission. And if we were allowed to play music in podcasts, I think the, uh, the lyrics to that Joni Mitchell song absolutely spot on.
2: We are Stardust. Oh, we'll be back next month. Thanks for listening.